Today we're going to be closing out uh, the letter we've been spending the summer studying in our series, Endure. This series has provided our community with uh, weeks of both encouragement and also challenge in the way of endurance as we've been reflecting on the Apostle Paul's final letter to young Pastor Timothy in the urban city of Ephesus. And throughout the series, I've been looking forward to this morning in particular, not just to wrap up the letter, but because we get to hear the letter taught from a different perspective than what our community's had over the past few weeks. Uh, Pastor Isaac and myself, as we've been teaching through this, you've largely been hearing the letter from kind of a Timothy perspective, the one the letter was written to, a young pastor trying to figure out, you know, how in the world do I do this faithfulness to Jesus thing, leading a, you know, a church in an urban context. I mean, that's why we picked the letter was it speaks so much to, you know, what we are as a community and even who I am as a pastor. And yet today, I'm really excited because we get to sit under and hear the word taught from someone who's a little bit more like a Paul than a Timothy. And so as we hear from Dr. Gary Bashir, as we're hearing a call, an encouragement, a meditation on endurance that's not coming from a young guy looking forward and saying, let's do this together, but someone who's looking back over a life of faithfulness and endurance and, and you know, encouraging us in that. I'm so excited today. So on that note, Dr. Gary Bashir is just a testament to some of his endurance. He serves as a pastor. And he's on the preaching team of Grace Community Church in Gresham, Oregon, where he's been there for 25 years, correct? That's why, yeah, we were talking about last night. He has uh, served as professor of theology and served on staff at Western Seminary in Portland, where he served since 1980. And he has been married to his wonderful wife, Sherry, for 54 years, 54 and a half now, as he was counting last night. And man, does his, you know, he beams with joy as you begin to ask questions about his many kids and grandkids. It is such a blessing to have Gary here with us today, uh, especially for those of you who were here with us earlier in the year. Uh, you know uh, Gary has, you know, coming up on a year now of testing, surgeries, radiation, and infusion, uh, infusions working to cast the cancer out of his body that has made its home in his body. And so it's a blessing to have him here today and also to get to celebrate with Gary that radio surgery has, one, um, killed the melanoma cells in his brain. That's really good news right? Um, and then also a recent MRI showing his lungs are showing no new growths. Um, so we still got some where we're basically waiting to see, are they dead or are they just kind of, you know, they're not growing. And so, man, we're just like celebrating the awesomeness uh, that is modern medicine and God working through doctors and medicine. And so um, as he's moving into this next stage um, of kind of fighting off this cancer, we're praying for thankfulness to God for what he's done up to this point and that he would continue that work. And so, man, I'm excited to have him uh, teaching with us today, someone who, uh, when you think about endurance and steadfastness and faithfulness, for me, is one of those, those primary characters uh, that comes to my mind. And so, uh, to get things rolling, would you join me in standing as we read from 2 Timothy today? Chapter 4, we're going to start back where we were a couple weeks ago in verse 6 to kind of get us rolling as we then move into the final kind of personal greetings of the letter. So, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Paul writing in his final letter to young Timothy. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus 
to Dalmatia. Luke alone is here with me. So get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left it with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And so beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me, and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Aristus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends his greetings to you. So do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to the end of 2 Timothy and, and getting to sit under the teaching of uh, Gary today. I pray that your spirit would encourage us in the way of endurance. God, guiding us in this final way of endurance that Paul points us to here, a resting in Jesus. Um, God, I pray that you would help us uh, to open our lives before your word today, to shape us into the sort of people that you're calling us to be. Um, God, in a generation a time when fickleness and jumping back and forth from thing to thing, when endurance and steadfastness of God are not our natural posture. We pray that you, by your word, through your spirit, would begin to continue this work of creating us into an enduring people, a people who are steadfast in our commitment to you and our love for one another. And so we pray that as we hear from Gary today, spirit, that you would speak uh, through the words of Paul. Help us to hear and help us to take all that we've heard in this series further into our lives. Uh, than just what these past few weeks could do. Pray you'd speak today. Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. And as you do, uh, would you give a warm welcome to uh, pastor, to your pastor, uh, Paul, to my Timothy, if we can go that far. Uh, truly a saint, though he would uh, shirk at that, that title. Let's give a round of applause for uh, Gary. So I'm curious, how many were here back in January when I was here? Okay, and you remember what I was doing at that spot? Yeah. Sitting here, my head falling forward because I couldn't keep my head up. When I was talking with people, I had to sit down and lean back against the chair. Uh, the next day, I was so exhausted. The, one of the prof, uh, pastors I'm meeting with on Monday last time uh, ended up getting me a walker so I could prop myself up. And then I went and taught four days of class over at Calvary Costa Mesa. And uh, by the time I got back to Portland, I discovered that I could tape my eyelids open and see. <laughs> so I did. And there are pictures of me on brochures.net of me with eyelids taped open, a neck brace around my neck. The walker was out of sight, but if I got up, I had to lean on it and such. And you can see I'm in a different place now. Yeah. Now, yeah, that wasn't cancer. That was the effect of the treatment of the cancer Obdiva or Yervoi, two drugs to kill the melanoma, and it reduced the size of the nodules in my lungs by a third, which is good. Then I was three months off with no treatment because that was, my liver numbers went crazy. It was trying to kill my liver as well as the cancer. 
So I took three months off, and then I've been three months on Obdivo only, and that's the thing that Ryan was just talking about. So I'm in a spot now where, you know, I'm doing fine, and it, it's good. So we're praying. And I've got, you know, a lot of people praying for me, and that's, that's really cool to be a part of that. And uh, so I was thinking with Ryan and I were talking last night. How old are you, Ryan? 31. 31. Uh, do you know what I was doing when I was 31? I told you last night. Do you remember? This is a quiz. I do this. I'm a professor. <laughs> you, were, you were just uh, coming into Western at that point. No. No, not yet. no I was at Pasadena, right. finishing up at Fuller, teaching part-time at Biola, headed back to the Philippines, because I was going to be a Bible college teacher, church planter there in the Manila area. And God interrupted my life and said, go to Western Conservative Baptist Seminary. Because that's kind of the attitude of the place in those days. And I said, there's no way, no chance in God's green earth I'm going to that fighting for any more Dallas the Dallas school. You know, pre-trib rapture is the number one teaching in the world. And I just, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, I had this little argument with God, and God wins those arguments. And so and I was 31 at that point. Uh, two kids, and so Sherry and I went to Portland, and I agreed to stay 10 years, get my kids through school, and now 42 years later, I'm still at Western, and it's not Western, anymore. it's Western <laughs> Seminary, and a whole different school, which is good. Love what I do. I get to work with guys like Ryan, and I do a lot of that, pastoring pastors. It's such a joy, and when I read this last section of Second Timothy, so much of it resonates with where I'm at. I'm 75 years old. I'm in a finishing pattern. Now, to be sure, this past year, I worked triple time at Western Conservative Baptist Seminary. <laughs> and I'm trying to cut down. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so that's uh, the pattern of life is what Paul is doing, handing off to Timothy. And I'm in that process of handing off some folk who will be teaching for me at Western and also handing off to young pastors, um, women and men who are just world changers, and I'm really glad to be able to do that, and glad to be back with you guys here as a product of that, uh, what it is. So I look at this passage, is that up there yet, the passage, there we go, and I look at this, and what I see in this passage is the character of Paul coming forth in his teaching, and what he's doing, of course, as Ryan has said, and you've taught this, is he is now equipping Timothy to take over what he has been doing because he's in prison. We don't know exactly when this is done, but it's, of course, at the end of his life. And his expectation is not good. So he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And that's what happened at the end of a sacrifice. You would pour something on the drink offering. And he is being poured out, which says that, you know, it's, it's an interesting way to look at it. Look at his life as a sacrifice. And back in Romans chapter 12, he said, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And he's now lived that out for years, and he's doing that, and he's recognizing that's what's happening, is my life is being given as a beautiful sacrifice to Jesus Christ and his faithfulness. And that's what he wants Timothy to do. The time of his departure has come. Now, the word departure there, I didn't know this until I was reading about it on the airplane on the way down here. The Greek word behind that is the, our word analysis. So what do you do when you analyze something? What do you, this is the thing. I ask questions, you answer, right? Yeah. What do you do when you analyze something? 
What do you do when you analyze something? You look at it closer, yep. And in analysis, what are you doing? Keep going, you're doing great. Looking at all the data, trying to sort things out and categorize. Well, that departure, the analysis is, it's used for a lot of different things and we use that same thing today. It's, it's trying to analyze and get things done. I mean, you know what it means. But the word there is, it's used for what you do with a boat. You climb into a boat, if you're smart, the boat is tied to the dock. If you're stupid, you try to jump in it and take a drink or be a drink. I, but when you take a boat and you in the boat now and you untie it, you move away from the dock out into the river or the ocean or the pond. That's what he's talking about here. He is untying his life from the things of this life the things of this world, the mission he's been doing, and he's setting out on a journey to somewhere else, except the thing is he knows where he's going. And where is he going? Philippians 1.23, when he talks about that same kind of thing, he says, I desire to depart, same word, and be where? Bible nerds. And be what? With the Lord. See, for him to depart means to leave this world and the mission of Jesus to be with Jesus at the right hand of the Father, seated with him in the heavenlies. We'll unpack that tonight, what it means for us to be seated with Jesus in the heavenlies in relation to the demonic authorities. That's what he's talking about here. I'm going to depart this world, but he knows where he's going. And he knows what's coming next. And in all the things that go on, you know, what does it mean when you die? Now, most of you, you know, you're not thinking that direction, uh, but it's a reality. I'm at that spot. I've got, I may have active melanoma in my lungs. I don't know. I've got, I've got melanoma nodules in my lungs. We don't know if they're active or not. We'll find that out in the next nine months. But at 75 years old with active cancer and an aggressive cancer like melanoma, this is a reality in my life. And it's, you know, it's a present reality. And I'm thinking that departure, what does it mean? It means the goal of my life is the goal of the next stage of my life, to be with Jesus, serving him, and whatever that means. Just like when I left Pasadena to go to Western Seminary up in Portland, I didn't know what that meant. But I knew who I was serving, and I knew where I was going. That's what Paul is saying. I'm going to depart. I'm going to depart. The time is here. And then he uses three analogies in verse 7. Fought the fight, finished the race, kept the faith. Now again, we're going to talk tonight about what that fight means. But he wrote in Ephesians 6, we war not against flesh and blood, people. That's not our enemy. Our enemy is the spiritual forces of darkness, the demonic powers behind the people who have taken them captive to serve his will. That's what we're talking about. We're trying to liberate captives from the evil one who has taken it. I believe there is a war in the heavenlies prior to Genesis 1-1. When God creates this universe, when God creates heaven and the earth, there is already a war going on in the heavenlies. And what I understand is that means the original humans were created in a war zone. Genesis 1 is talking about a good place, Eden, 
But outside of that, there's other stuff going on. There's, we're created in a war zone. And we're created as blessable, image-bearing covenant partners with the Lord of the universe to overcome the chaos monster, the serpent, the devil. And our weapons are doing good. See, the devil's weapons is disaster, despair, disorder, we are here to do good, to create communities of generosity, justice, beauty, like Collective, like Grace Community Church in Gresham. And we are creating order and beauty and justice and faithfulness, and that doing good is an act of war. And what he's saying is here, I have fought that fight. He changes the metaphor. I am running a race. But he says, I have finished the marathon. I've made it. Now, I'm a smart enough guy that I've never run a marathon and have zero interest in such a stupid thing. I, I have driven the van for the Hood to Coast Relay many times. Hood to Coast Relay, we start up on Mount Hood, Timberline Lodge, and we run 186 miles, or 196 miles, depending on what we do, to Seaside down on the coast. Teams of 12 runners, so you get in, and a runner runs six miles, ruins their body, gets back in the van, so it all goes and tightens up. Then they get out of the van, run six more miles in the middle of the race, get back in the van and really cramp up, and then get out and run a third six-mile leg over the mountains to the coast. Is there anything smart about that? And they love it. They come back and do it again. I think this is stupid, but I love the teamwork, so I drive the van. <laughs> but the funnest thing is, I've got to wake them up after they get you know, two hours of sleep, maybe, after the second leg, and they're dying. Hey, it's time to get up. We've got to go run some more. I'm going to get out of my life. You know, they get up and run some more. Paul has finished the race. Seaside is in sight, is what he's talking about. And he's run 196 miles. And he does it in a team because he's not doing it by himself. I've finished the race, he says. I've kept the faith. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean I can lose my salvation? Is that what he's saying? If he's not there to the end, does that mean that he could end up in hell? I think that's a different question than what he's asking. Now, my view is you're born again. You cannot be unborn. You know, Emma cannot climb back in Aaron's womb and I don't like this out here. I want to go back inside. I don't think you can do that. But I think you can walk away from the faith. I have known pastors who have, we now call it deconstructed and walked away completely from any confession of Jesus Christ. They walked away from the race. They walked away and they're heaping insults on Jesus. And I've seen some of those who have repented and realized later, I was hurt, I was angry, I was disappointed, I was tired. I was not taking care of myself, and they left the faith because of just too much. Now, some of those people may not have been saved in the first place. I mean, we can't judge that. But what Paul is saying is I remain faithful for the whole marathon. See, that's what I want to do. I started doing uh, Christian ministry at age 22 when Sherry and I left my math 
teacher job in Denver to go to Manila and teach at Faith Academy. And then I've been doing that now since 1969. And I can say with Paul, I have kept the faith. Now my faith has grown and deepened and widened a lot. But I'm glad to say at this age, I've kept the faith. And there's a really good chance I'm gonna make it from here because the end is near. That's what I want for you. And what I can tell you, I've been through some extremely difficult stuff. Now, my life has been incredibly blessed. My personal life has, I mean, like cancer, I've had no, no symptoms whatsoever of cancer. Zero. Well, I did have blood in my urine way back when. Uh, but that, like I said, no biggie, just, wow, that stuff's red. What's that about? You know, it didn't hurt or anything. They did a CAT scan. Oh, it's bladder cancer. Oh, well, we can fix that. You know, surgery and, you know, and a few days later it was done. I've seen in living color the inside of my bladder twice. How many of you have seen the inside of your bladder even once? <laughs> There's fun to bladder cancer. Don't get it. But in that process, they discovered the melanoma that had metastasized from that little mole that was up in my forehead. And I've never had any, my life is incredibly blessed. I did have some nasty side effects from the, but I mean, it just lasted just a short while. I have worked with people whose lives appear to be cursed, and some who have literally been cursed. Tammy Comer, John Mark's wife, her testimony is public now. She was under an intergenerational curse that was put on her great-grandmother way back when because of sin in her life. And I was a part of a team that helped Tammy get released from her curse about 18 months ago. You can go to bridgetown.church and you can hear her testimony as a part of Gerald Griffin's sermon on Ephesians chapter one, verse 15. Her life was literally cursed, incredible hardship, and we've helped her get released from that. I've kept the faith, means I've stayed the course even when things are difficult. So he looks to the past and he sees that he is guarding a treasure, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He looks to the future and in the future he sees a crown of righteousness when he's going to stand before Jesus and Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not everybody will get that word because not everybody is. Some people like 1 Corinthians 1 or 1 Corinthians 3 your works have been burned up and you're saved yet so as by fire. I want to be the one who gets the well done, good and faithful servant because I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. I want that for you as well. Because I can look back for a legacy of 50 years of ministry and see all kinds of things, long-term friends that I have a shaping influence in their life. That's what I want for you. Now yours may look real different than mine because the most effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ have never once been paid by a church or a Christian organization. They're working for something like Apple, or they're in the film industry, or they're serving tables at a restaurant, but they're doing it in the name of Jesus and doing incredible work in that. You don't have to be a professional Christian to be a faithful minister of the Lord of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking at, a crown of righteous, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but all those 
who love his appearing. But what do you look at in the present? Next slide there. Yeah. Do your best to come to me. Demas. We see him mentioned a couple times in Colossians and Philemon as a fellow worker. He's listed right alongside the heroes of the faith. But Demas has deserted me. Why? Because somehow a fellow worker who was applauded in two other books that Paul wrote loved the world or loved this life. The irony of this thing is, if you know a bit of Greek words, the difference between phileo and agape, phileo is his primary thing, is love for the family. It's family love, brotherly love. Philadelphia is phileo, love of brotherhood. The word agape is often seen to be that self-sacrificial love that Jesus has for us when he sacrificed his life for us. Now, they're more synonymous than that. The word here, and then there's, uh, there are other words that talk about a sexual love, uh, eros, uh, and this word that's used here is the word agape. What he's saying is Demas somehow has ended up loving the things of this life like Jesus loves the people he dies for. And I think it's a deep irony, but it's a terrible tragedy that something happened in Demas' life that he's no longer faithful. He has deserted the race. He has left the faith. He's left Paul in the community. And we don't know anything more about it than that except that the impact it's had on Paul. And what's the impact on Paul? He's alone. He's alone. Demas has deserted me in love with this present world and gone to Thessalonica. These other people, uh, they've gone. It doesn't say anything negative about them. They just aren't with him. Luke, he says, alone is with me. And Luke, of course, Luke is the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke and then wrote the book of Acts, the follower, follower. So Luke is there. Mark. Again, this is a place where I mean, I'm a, I've been a part of the Bible Project since before its beginning. And our theme there is Bible's unified story leading to Jesus. So when you see something like this, you always think, now what else is there about the story? Well, this story almost certainly goes back to John Mark in Acts chapter 13, where Paul and Barnabas were partnering together and John Mark had gone with them on the first missionary journey except John Mark was like a Demas. He deserted. He left. He didn't stay with him. Whatever happened, we don't know, but he left the journey and went back home. Now they're back from the missionary journey, getting ready to go again to visit some of those same churches in some new areas, and Barnabas, the son of encouragement, that is the best encourager ever, says, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, no. And John Mark becomes a point of contention between Barnabas and Paul so strong that they split and went different ways. Now, 
What happened there? Many people say, well, John Mark, was a, he was a young man, and Barnabas wanted to encourage him, he wanted to build him up. Let's take him and think the best of him. And Paul's the hard-nosed legalist, type A, Enneagram 8. No way! You know. There's another possibility. There's another possibility. Another possibility is Barnabas is the encourager, and he says, he can do it. I know he can do it. And Paul is saying, no, 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 Barnabas, he's not a frontline missionary. He's a great pastor. Leave him here. Let him be a pastor. That's who he is. No, he's failed. He needs to do it again and, and overcome the shame of having walked away. And they end up in a fight about what's best for John Mark, but they both want John Mark's best. I think that's more likely what happened. But whatever happened, here we see Paul looking at the man who left him on the journey and he's saying he's been very useful to me. And whatever happened in between, Mark, John Mark, is a man who deserted, maybe like Demas, who is now back. And what I see here is Paul is rejoicing in this man who has been found faithful after deserting. See, if you do end up in a deserting place, if you do end up because of tragedy or despair or whatever, leaving the faith, that's not necessarily the end of the story. There are Barnabases or Paul who want to help, but you have to accept it. And that's what I see in, in Paul here, is he's finishing up, he is rejoicing in a man who is very useful to me, who at one point was a deserter. And redemption stories are the delight in my life. What grieves me, frankly, is that so much of the Christian church today is taking, and we're spending our time meditating on failure stories. And we're celebrating failures in ministry. And we could name names. There are a lot of them. And they are failures. Carl Lentz, Hillstrong, New York. Mark Driscoll, Power Abuse, Mars Hill. There's no Mars Hill Church anymore. Now the churches are still there, many of them. We could name many others. Brian Houston, lead pastor, Hillsong. I mean, there's a lot of failures. And I th what I see happening is too many people are, are feasting on failure and becoming discouraged. Now, failure is real. I don't mean to say it's not. It is real. But what I love are the redemption stories. I love the John Mark stories who left but somehow ended up coming back. And that's what I love to celebrate of course, I even more love to celebrate the ones who never left in the first place because they were able to get help when times got tough instead of leaving. And I just wonder what would happen to John Mark if he would have said, guys, I'm discouraged. Can you help me? We don't know. We don't know. Redemption stories are great. He talks about some other people, Titius. Have you ever heard this silly phrase, stupid, idiotic phrase, all I need is Jesus. Yep. yep. <laughs> Have you ever believed the phrase, all I need is Jesus? Uh, now you don't want to say it because I already called it stupid, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
That is such an idiot phrase. It's just stupid. Why do I say that? Because what Paul says right here. You look down here a little bit, and he talks about the Lord is with me. Jesus did not desert him. He did not desert Jesus. And what does he say? I need some stuff. What does he need? <laughs> What's the first thing he needs here? A coat. How come? Winter is coming. He needs a coat. Will Jesus keep him warm on a winter day? No, he will not. Now, to be sure, at the God level, all I need is the triune God. I don't need anything else on that level. And that's, the, that's where Satan comes along and says, let me help. I think one of the temptations of, of the devil to Jesus, the third temptation, is let's partner together to do the redemptive mission. I think that's the third temptation. Let's do it together. It'll be more effective. It'll be quicker, more efficient. No, there's only one maker of heaven and earth. There's only one triune God. There's only one savior of the world, and his name is Jesus. Nothing else goes at that level. But along with that, we need lots of other things. We need coats for warm days. We need coffee all the time. Yeah, totally. I, you know, you look at that. I bring the books and the parchments. We don't know what those are. I mean, but they're precious to him. Uh, he didn't have a Kindle in those days. Perish, too bad. Alexander did me great harm. Beware of him. We're going to find as we look in the next slide, which we're not doing just yet, that Paul is going to be very forgiving for many people, but not Alexander. He's warning Timothy, this is a wolf in sheep's clothing, apparently, who pretended to be part of the fellowship but did great harm, not only to Paul, but to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, we don't know any details. And forgiveness is a huge Christian virtue, but we don't forgive everybody. We don't forgive everybody. Matthew 18, where Peter says to Jesus in consternation, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? Like 70 times 7 times? Or 7 times? And Jesus no, 70 times 7. You keep on forgiving. But that passage follows the church discipline passage. If somebody's taken in sin, go talk to him. See what's going on. If he hears you, if he repents, you want a brother, sister. If he doesn't, Take a couple others with you at the mouth of two or three. Maybe he will see his mistake and come back and repent. If he doesn't hear them, take a larger group with you. And the point is, you're working for redemption. You're working for forgiveness. You're working for repentance. But if the person says no, what's the outcome? You treat him as an unbeliever. See, we don't let sin go untouched. 
Paul is fully recognizing the ongoing persistent sin of an Alexander. Now that's different than Demas. Because Alexander is attacking the gospel. And he's warning Timothy, be careful, he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. The phrase that just came to me just a couple weeks ago, well just a week ago, uh, we have to learn to distinguish, especially leaders, we have to learn to distinguish between wolves in sheep's clothing and dirty sheep. Which one do you want sleeping with you? Well, neither, actually. <laughs> but see what happens, we look at dirty sheep a lot of times and we want to shoot them because they're stinky and dirty. The wolf in sheep's clothing is clean and nice, or appears to be. And Paul is saying to Timothy, be careful of wolves in sheep's clothing, which he talks about back in Acts chapter 20, where he uses that phrase when he's talking about the Ephesian elders. There will come among you dangerous people that are like wolves in sheep's clothing, and you have to discern the difference between them. And there's a couple ways to do that that I do. One of the things is I say, can we pray together? And then when I'm being mean, and I, have I ever mean to you, Ryan? Have I ever been mean to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I'm being mean, I say, let's pray, but here's the thing. I want you not to use the word Lord, just, or bless. What does that do? You can't say Lord, just, or bless. It means all your memorized prayers now are, you can't use them. And it just stops everything. Because what I want to see, there's a big difference between people who say prayers and people who talk to Abba from their heart. And that's a key difference. Because wolves don't talk to Abba from their heart. They say nice prayers. And they include, Lord, just bless us right now. And when you can't say that, it blows up the, the ritual prayers, the memorized prayers, the, heart, the ones that sound nice but don't come from the heart. Because prayers from the heart say, Lord, this is so hard, I don't think I can make it. Lord, I'm dying right now. I think that's where Paul's at right now. But it, it does say here, the Lord, well, let's do the next slide. Oh, no, no, down at the bottom here. No, back, back, there you go. At my first defense, verse 16, no one came, all deserted me. Does Paul need other people with him? Does Paul need other people with him? Say yes. yes. Yeah, that's not a trick question. Desperately. Because we're built for community. And that's why this stupid phrase, all I need is Jesus. Jesus can give me strength to deal with the loneliness of being alone, but we still desperately need Jesus. We desperately need other people to stand with us. And that's what Paul's saying. Everyone deserted me. I was alone. Yes, Jesus is here. Praise be, Jesus. Thank you. But I needed some people. I needed someone. Look at this next slide here. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. That's his great joy. Is it the gospel message, redemption, Jesus Christ, healing and hope and forgiveness and honor in place of shame, power in place of fear, forgiveness in place of guilt. 
That's what he loves to proclaim, and he's doing that. The Lord will rescue you from every evil deed and bring me safely in his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He is rejoicing that his future is with Jesus and his present is proclaiming it, but he's so alone. He's so alone. Look at these last phrases. Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila. And again, if you hyperlink back, you find that they're heroes of the faith, this apparently married couple. And we look back in Acts chapter 18, and we find Apollos, a great teacher, well-learned in scripture, but his faith was inadequate. He only knew the baptism of John. And Priscilla Aquila, pairing together, took Apollos, and together they taught him the way of God more accurately. And this is a place where these were not pastors of churches. They were just people in the community. But they together were teaching the strong pastor. And this is one of the pieces I see in the church is women and men working together to do discipleship in incredible ways. Now, my particular view is elders are male. But in my particular view, I think women and men, equally non-elders, can do any other ministry in the church except that's exclusive to elders. And that's what I want to see happening in churches. I want to see voices of women and men who are working together to serve the cause of Jesus Christ so that you can be in a letter someday. Ryan and Aaron, you've been very valuable to me. Because both are doing it. Not so, I assume that's happening here at Collective. From the stories I've heard from various people and I've been here, that's true. But see, there's some people that say, well, if, if you're a woman, you can't do these things because women are not allowed to do that. In my view, the only thing that women can't do is be elders. But elders are not making decisions and telling people what to do. They're taking responsibility for dirty sheep. And that's not fun a lot of times because dirty sheep turn out to be demises and they turn out to walk away and it breaks your heart and that responsibility of leading and equipping and inspiring and unifying which is the job of elders I think that's exclusively male I don't like that I would have women elders in a heartbeat I just can't get the job description that he puts in Titus and Timothy to agree with me I like to make the Bible agree with me except that integrity I just can't do it Priscilla and Aquila are great partners in the gospel. And those of you who are not in church leadership, those of you who are new here, and you think, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm just a kid in the faith. There's incredibly good things for you to do. And what you need to do is connect in and say, hey, I don't know much, but I can do this. I can run slides. I can set up chairs. Is there something I can do here? Yes. See, that's what collective, we serve together in different ways. Be who you are and use it for Jesus Christ. Well, I can't be a Bible nerd like Gary. Okay, good. We don't need many Bible nerds like me because we want to talk about details like what's the meaning of agape or analysis or something like that. But you can make coffee and you can take people that are hurting and tired and you can be an encouragement to them. Well, I'm not. See, that's the voice of Satan who wants to look at what you're not and disqualify you. 
Jesus looks at what you can be and helps you become that. And then you can be the final line of Paul's letter, Priscilla and Aquila, wonderful servants of Jesus Christ, he says. Erastus, uh, these are the guys. Do your best to come before winter. That's a whole phrase right there. I need you. Please come. There's one other phrase here I want to play with a little bit. It's that one, I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Why do you call the elders of the church? Because in James it says you call the elders and they pray and you'll always be healed, or so it seems. What do you do with the prayer of healing? I think of my own case with melanoma running in my body. Now, I absolutely go to doctors. But I've got many people praying for me. The elders of my church prayed for me. I mean, formally laid hands on them, that sort of thing. And the cancer has not disappeared. Paul, if you go back to Acts chapter 19, talks about Paul at Ephesus, and he was doing incredible, incredible things. People with long-term illnesses were suddenly miraculously healed. But here he leaves Trophimus behind in Miletus because he was ill. Even in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Timothy is not doing well. He didn't say call the elders to pray over you for many illnesses. He said take a little wine for your stomach. See, and that's the thing. How do you live in that tension? How do you live in that tension? Because sometimes God miraculously heals. I've been a part of some of those. I have prayed for people and seen God miraculously heal them. One of my students came in and brought me a piece of paper with a pathology report that he had a blood cancer for which there was no healing. There was no it was like melanoma three years ago. There was no, nothing they could do about it. You die of it. He went to his church. They prayed over him. And he showed me the second pathology report three weeks later. No evidence of any blood cancer whatsoever. Miraculous healing. But sometimes you die of it. How do you deal with that? One of the stories that I really like, if we can go forward a couple slides here. This little girl here, Olive Hagenthal. Her mother, Kelly, Kaylee, was one of the songwriters at Bethel. She's since moved on. She and her husband have moved on. Still very close with Bethel. But her little girl, Olive, yeah, go back, go back. We're asking for prayer. We believe it. We believe Jesus who died and conclusively defeated every grave, holding the keys to resurrection. We need it for our little Olive Elaine, who stopped breathing yesterday and has been pronounced dead by doctors. SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, for this little girl. When I was managing apartments in seminary, we had two doors down for our apartment. We had a SIDS. And I'll never forget the day when the mother ran out the hall, past our apartment, screaming. 
went down to see what was going on. Her husband, the father, was there. Just broken man. Because the little girl died of SIDS. They went in to wake her up, just normal things, and she could not be awakened because she was dead. That's all I lane. Kaylee Hagenthaler, Kate Hagenthal, asked for bold prayers. Next slide. Doesn't that just grip your heart? That's Kaylee and Olive. Next slide. Day three, a really good day for resurrection. We're now over home with gratitude for you, outpouring of love for us and faith for Olive. Jesus is faithful and true. He's riding in with victory. He brought, he bought Olive. Olive Elaine means victorious awakening. We call on the mighty, all-sufficient name of Jesus. We call you back by name, sweet girl. You will live. Thank you for faith-filled declarations. Keep them coming. Worship Jesus with us. He is moving. He is good. He is worthy. He is alive. Next slide. Day four. A really good day for resurrection. The church gathered. And they prayed powerfully. If you go to our Instagram, you can watch the video of the church praying powerfully there in Redding, California, up in north. Next slide. Day five, a really good day for resurrection. I've never been more grateful for Jesus. He is endlessly worthy of our love, trust, faith, and risk. And again, this picture just in the back room there at Bethel, this cute little girl, just wondering, what a girl this is. What's the problem? She's dead. Next slide. This is day seven. This is, sorry, I've forgotten her dad's name. Uh, I don't have it here. Uh, Andrew and Elise. Ollie's older sister, in their home looking out over Lake Shasta. Ollie, we miss you. Love you so much. We'll see you soon. We know now more than ever that King Jesus is good. His every word is worth believing and following at any cost. That's the song we'll sing to with you again. We finally sing it together. We cannot wait. This is a new day. We're awake for it. This is a victory story. The story goes on. Next slide. can't look at this slide without breaking up. That's Andrew tossing with a rainbow in the background, reaching for rainbows. This is the beginning of a song. She's an incredible songwriter. Maybe one day it stars, for now I'm learning all the places incarnation is found. He stoops down low, there's healing on the ground. slide. This is very recent. July. Just a month ago. Family vacation without your whole family. New memories without all you there. Clumsy. So many times we said Ollie would love this. And through smiles and tears lovingly hold the memory in place of holding her. Our last night, we bid farewell to the ocean. This rainbow stood waiting, spanning the waters. 
Say what you will, but I'm convinced those colors were for us, perhaps drawn by a little girl and her father while splashing around on the sea of glass. One day we'll be on the same shore, and that's a promise. And you notice what you notice about Kaylee there? What is she? Pregnant. That little new little child is going to be born very soon. Next slide. Yesterday I stumbled on a song by Kayla Higginthal in the middle of it, and I knew what we need to be reminded of in times like this. Everything seems out of control, but the middle of it is a storm, is where God is. The Bible says, Matthew 14, 27, be brave and don't be afraid. I am here. Jesus is right here with us. We are not alone in this. Next slide. Is there another one? Nope. That's the song. She wrote a prophetic song in the middle of it prior to Olive dying of SIDS. And see, that's where Paul is, because what we're seeing here in this passage is Paul's Gethsemane, where Jesus is in the garden and he's calling out to his father, I am so troubled that it feels like death is here already. He prays to God, take this cup from me to his father. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. He gives his feelings, desires, his trust. That's what Olive engendered in Andrew and Kaylee. It's what engendered in Paul here at the end of his letter. Because what happens, I think, when we understand what Paul is saying, is that we, understand, we do this. We pray boldly. Believing that he has got a power and love and he listens to the prayers of his people. So we bring in full authenticity our feelings, our desires, our hopes to the Father, believing that he is the Father of lights who cares deeply. And see, that's Paul's legacy. Oh, life can be hell. You deal with the death of little children. You deal with people who leave you. You deal with aloneness. You deal with torture, maybe. Or like me, you deal with a fully blessed life. And see, that's the question. No matter what your circumstance, will you be found faithful? Will you end your life with what Paul is saying here? His very last phrase. His very last phrase, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. That's what I want to say to you right now. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord be with your spirit, his grace be with you.